Hello, today I'm with Bonnie. Yes, like in Bonnie and Clyde, you will hear about her adventurous life, her first experience abroad. When I was 16, I had a very formative experience as an exchange student to Austria to live with a family for two months. And this was real, the first big lesson in cultural change and cultural adaptation. A desire to move. But he wanted to stay in New York, and there many things went wrong with the relationship, but also part of it, I think, was my feeling, I don't want to stay in New York the rest of my life. I'm from New York. I know this city. I know this life. I don't want this. <laughs> the different jobs she had. I was offered a job teaching English to the Yemeni Air Force. So I taught like 20 Air Force officers every morning. Yes. And all the experiences she gained along the way. If you consider, okay, I knew this, this is the way my family lived, this is the society I grew up in, but you have the time in another culture to turn those over in your mind and decide I agree or I don't agree. So that's nice. So are you ready to listen to her? First, Bonnie, I want to thank you to be here with me. I don't know if you want to say a few words about your childhood, you know, where you grew up, if you studied what you studied, how was your neighborhood? I grew up in a suburb of New York City by the Connecticut border, perfectly placed for childhood because we were a 30-minute train ride from Manhattan, but it was still a town where you knew people, where you could a girl could ride her bicycle safely. I could walk home from school. So it was a very nice place to grow up. I went to a public school, as most people do in the United States, although there, most of my family sent their children to private school. My parents did not. And I think that was formative also, that I went to public schools. When I was 16, I had a very formative experience, which colored the way I looked at living abroad. I went as an exchange student to Austria for two months. I lived in a town in southern Austria with a fam very middle-class family. Mm -hmm. A family, this, Austria was not very developed then. It was still oh, poor. So. What year was that? This was 1959. I had had one year of German at school. Well, so I could communicate, <laughs> not very well. The family where they placed me had a girl one year older than me, and she spoke about the same level of English as I spoke of German. <laughs> so this was very good for both of us. No one else in the family spoke a word of English. So I had to make an effort in German. It was a fantastic experience, and this was real, the first big lesson in cultural change and cultural adaptation. Because just about everything was different, at least in practical things. For example, I was used to having a bathroom where I could take hot water and take a bath every day if I wanted. Here it was, well, you had to heat up the boiler, and this was a big production, and you, know, you had to think about that cost of money. So we weren't taking baths so very often. My Austrian mother d discovered very early on that I, I loved Austrian cakes and sweets, and she was always baking for me. So I came back a bit heavier than I had left. <laughs> But they placed 10 foreign American students in the same area. So we would meet at the town swimming pool sometimes. So I had the opportunity to speak English also from time to time. I was not completely alone there. But my family is from, originally from Germany. 
200, 150 years ago. And that was one reason why I had studied German. So that's how I ended up there. When I came back, I saw the world very differently. So what was the main difference for you? A lower standard of living, but that, that made no difference whatsoever. Everybody, you know, my family was quite content with their lot. And my Austrian sister, with her, she was not planning to go to university. She was going into her last year of school, and she was in a commercial school, and she wanted to go be a work in a bank. She had no ambition higher than that. And I thought that was changed because I went to a rather pressured American high school where 90% of the students went to a university afterwards. That was quite different. I hadn't known anyone very well who didn't want to go to university if they could manage it. And so there was that. There was a standard of living that was quite different, and I was quite taken with Europe. I loved the scenery. I thought the culture, the old things. I loved talking in a different language. So those affected me quite strongly. And when I came back, I think one of the strongest effects on me was I wanted to see different parts of the world. For Even for university, I said straight away, I don't want to stay on the East Coast. And I refused to even consider any university on the East Coast, which had my parents crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I won that one. So where did you go? So I went to University of Chicago. And what did you study? I had a hard time making up my mind. I loved, loved music very much. And first I thought I would study music, but then I got there and uh, I changed my mind because the courses in social science were so fantastic. And then when I finished, I had the opportunity to go study in Delhi University. I almost did it, and then I changed my mind. Because I was a little worried that what would happen is I'd go to it for a year to Delhi, and then the easy way, because there was lots of money at that time from the government to do non-Western studies and non-Western uh, languages, that I would probably come back and do a master's and a doctorate. And really, you know, when you do that, the only thing I could think would happen was I would end up being a teacher at mm -hmm. a university. And I don't like teaching very much. And I didn't want to be an academic. And I couldn't think what else I would do with it. I suppose now that I know more, that I probably would have gotten an offer to go into the CIA, but that didn't occur yeah. to me then. State Department. <laughs> Maybe State Department, yeah. but I wasn't, didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that was really what I was good for. I'm not much of a diplomat. So I decided not to go. And I decided, so I started working in, I took a job in Chicago with a, a community organization in the middle of an urban renewal district, and I got very interested in that. Then I, I realized that I had better get a master's degree because you get taken more seriously. I was in Chicago, and I got married rather young at that point to a medical student. So I went back to my university. They had a center for urban studies, and I went to them and said, is it possible to do something like a master's with you? They said, oh, that's very interesting, because we were considering starting a master's program in urban studies. Oh, well. <laughs> so would you like to be our first student? <laughs> and we'll get a scholarship for you. So this was quite wow. irresistible. So <laughs> it wasn't exactly the course that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. In fact, it wasn't at all, as it turned out. But um, I'm a very, rather practical person. And I realized that it didn't matter. This was a very university with a very good name. Mm -hmm. And coming out to say I have my master's from University of Chicago was fine. Nobody cared. Chicago I stayed in Chicago. Chicago after my master's another year and then moved to New York and worked for the New York City Planning Department for two years 
and ended up divorcing. Oh, and then was because your your husband stayed in Chicago. You no, know, we 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 went together finally mm -hmm. to New York, where he was working as a doctor. But he wanted to stay in New York, and the many things went wrong with the relationship. But also part of it, I think, was my feeling: I don't want to stay in New York the rest of my life. I'm from New York. I know this city. I know this life. I don't want this. So that was one of the many issues. Yes. So I eventually decided I had to get out, and I was two possibilities. I applied to the Peace Corps, the American mm -hmm. Peace Corps, and they offered me a job working as a city planner with the Ministry of Housing in Morocco. Or the other thing was I had by then a Belgian boyfriend in the U.S., <laughs> And he was moving back to Belgium, and he said, "Why not move back with me?" It, this was not a this was a rather shaky relationship, but I thought, well, it doesn't matter. We'll see what happens. So I decided, you know what? I think I'm going to move to Belgium because I'd like to live in Europe. I said to myself, "I have can support myself with my savings for six months. The relationship will probably be ended anyway soon, but you know, we'll see what happens. And if if it doesn't, if I'm not happy there, I'll move back to the U.S." Yes. So I left. How was it when you arrived there? Did you have high expectations? Everything was everything was very different. I mean, that was a very big adaptation too, because it wasn't like living in a family. Mm -hmm. And I had traveled in Europe in the meantime. I had taken a very long, a two-month trip with my husband, my first husband. But first of all, had to find an apartment, and then I had to find a job, and also having to function. In another language, oh, in, in, in those days, nobody spoke English in Brussels. I took an apartment near where my boyfriend took an apartment, and this turned out to be a very Dutch-speaking part of Brussels. Oh, He was a Dutch speaker, not a French speaker. That's so easy. then I had to function in the shops in Dutch because they didn't like speaking French in the shops there. I had to figure out everything by myself. It was quite something. And then, you know, I was quite lonely in the beginning. I didn't have a job. And I found out that there was a, an organization, was Women Expats, called Women Overseas for Equality. So I go to one meeting, and I meet all these fantastic women from all over. And through that, I met a woman journalist who said, oh, you, you're looking for a job as a city planner. I know someone who might be able to help you. And he got me an introduction to a Belgian town planning group. And they hired me. So I had a job. <laughs> I was extremely lucky. You know, it's one of these things about being in the right time and the mm -hmm. right place. Yes. The reason they hired me was that they had just, the firm had just got their first contract from the EU, and the manager of the contract was an English speaker. Mm. So they thought, oh, an English speaker, that sounds good, we'll hire her. We won't pay her very much. And then I started, you know, more networking through friends, through this group of women that I first met. I met a whole crowd of people. And so I had a life. I had my life at work, which was all in Dutch. A very new work situation, quite different from my work situation that I'd known in a town planning group that was part of the government, because I'd worked in Chicago and New York, mm -hmm. city governments. And first, going into a consultant, I'd never worked for a consultancy before, and also it, uh, very different ideas about what they were doing and how they saw themselves and what they thought my role was. Also, what they thought their employees' roles were, and that was a big shock for me because they were extraordinarily paternalistic, and I was not used to this being a normal American with a big mouth. So, <laughs> so. 
who was not used to keeping quiet. So uh, some friction then? Not really frictions, but I think they were a little surprised at me and, you know, the way I interacted, I, I said what I wanted. I also was a little shocked at their sort of private sector approach. I mean, I, this, I would, had been on the government side and now I was on the private sector side. So I had to see things a little bit differently. I, I thought that they had an extremely sloppy approach to their work. The other side of my life in Brussels then was very international, not Belgian at all. Until about f- several years later, I really made no personal Belgian friends at all. It was very hard to insert yourself into their lives. Belgium, because it has two language groups, the first division is which is your language, and that separates people. You're either a Francophone or or, or Flemish speaker. Mm -hmm. That's the first division. Then the second is you're either Catholic or, I would say, non-Catholic. So I was not used to things like that. I went to a school. I'd gone to a school and university where people were all from all sorts of religions and no one ever asked. You know, it's rude to ask your religion in this country. So they couldn't classify me. I wasn't a French and Dutch speaker. I was an English speaker. And they didn't know what religion I was, so they couldn't decide, you know, you're one of us or you're not one of us. So at that point, you were not with your boyfriend anymore? No. Oh, yeah, I was sort of with my boyfriend. but Because he was your door to know Belgian people. Yes. Oh, yes. So I knew his family. Yes, that's not true. Yes, true. So the first year I was there, we were together, and I spent a lot of time with his... his he was close to his family, so I, I spent time with his family. So I actually did get to know his family mm-hmm. and some a few of his friends. Yes. Not many. And I did not become friendly with the people in my work because to them I was an outsider. A man came to work at there who was a Dutchman and we fell in love eventually. We moved in together and we decided we both wanted to, he had lived already in a developing country and we decided we wanted to go live and work in a developing country. Whichever of us got the first job offer, the other would go. And he got an offer very quickly from the Dutch government to to go on a Dutch government technical assistance project in Pakistan. So I was a trailing spouse then. That was a shock also. So I had had my very fun life in Belgium. My work was not terrifically interesting at the end, so I wasn't sad to leave this company. So I went to Pakistan, so I was was ready for a change at that Mm -hmm. point. But I, I hadn't thought to myself clearly, what would it be like if I didn't get work? And I didn't get work there. I didn't find work. First of all, I had a little problem that I went there on a three-month visitor visa, a tourist visa, and I would have to leave the country to get a new visa. At that point, we decided we would have a baby and get married. I insisted on getting married if I got pregnant. And I thought that if we were going to have an international life, that was just not feasible not to be married. So we got married in the embassy. So I stayed a year. I did not get pregnant, and I also did not find a job. And these two things together colored my attitude towards being in Pakistan. Along, so I was not very happy. I, I found it very hard. Did you find some international community there in Karachi? Or? Well, it was a little bit hard. I met some small group of people, mm-hmm. yes, uh, mainly English. Pakistani families? Uh, that was hard again, because yeah. I wasn't... You see, I think this is this, it's very hard. If maybe if I'd had children there, mm-hmm. I would have. I yes. would have found a playgroup or mm-hmm. something like that, or a kindergarten, or maybe the international school had, had Pakistani families who sent mm-hmm. their children there. 
But that wasn't the case, and I think that that's very hard when you don't have an entry point. After Pakistan, the year in Pakistan, we decided to drive back to Belgium from Pakistan in a Toyota Corolla. That was an adventure too. That was quite you know, six weeks. It was just before the Afghan borders closed permanently and just a few months before the Iranian revolution. <laughs> we moved back to Belgium without jobs. It took quite a long time. We spent almost a year and a half without, with only some consultant work. And my life there that year was not so good because I was, we were just sort of floating, uh, looking for the next job. And we did finally get hired by a consultant firm that hired us as a team, part of a three-person team to go live in Morocco. Morocco game. So I got back. I got to Morocco. It was meant to be. It was meant to be, exactly. <laughs> it's good that you didn't have regrets to, no. to refusing the first well, time. Well, yes. So, you know, things always work for the best, you can say. So there I was, and I loved it. And we, it was wonderful. Um, I had no problem adopting, adapting. My French was not very good then, but I was working, and nobody spoke English there, of course. And all the friends we made were Moroccan architects that we worked with, which was very good. So, and they were younger than us. They were all Moroccans who had uh, studied, done their uh, university training, their architecture training in France, and then had to come back and work for the government for five years to mm -hmm. pay this back. How long did you live in Morocco? So we were in Morocco one and a half years. And I had heard the Americans were working in Morocco. And so I went to Rabat and I found out where was the American uh, Technical Assistance, American USAID office. And I just wandered in there one day and started asking around and who did the urban work. I said, well, would you tell him to call me when he comes, next time he calls? And he told me that he was coming to Morocco all the time because they were going to do an urban upgrading project in Casablanca. And he was doing the preparation work. And I said, boy, that would be neat. You know, who's, who's going to do the work? How does it work? And he said, we engaged, we hire a contractor who does the work. So he put me in touch with the company that was going to do it. And my husband and I met, and they were... They wanted to hire us, and they wanted my husband to be the team leader. Perfect fit. They wanted me to be the team sociologist. Perfect fit. And then USAID said they wouldn't accept having a non-American as the team leader. And then in the meantime, my husband was approached by the people from the World Bank who had found out about him from the World Bank team working in our city, and they asked him if he was interested in setting up the first World Bank urban project in North Yemen. So my reaction was pretty negative. <laughs> I did not want to go there. But my husband's reaction was very positive. So why didn't you want to go there? I was a little bit skeptical about going to Yemen because I knew it was quite backward and I was a little bit worried about this. And you were also worried to end up like that, in Pakistan with no work? And uh, I was very worried about that. First of all, the World Bank was absolutely determined to get my husband to accept. They t accepted any condition that we put. 
we, we, we put all sorts of conditions, which I think the World Bank stepped on the Yemenis to accept all of this. One, and one of the conditions was that the World Bank would accept in principle to hire me as the project sociologist if the Yemenis accepted me. So we went out there, and one of, we had several conditions. One of them was flying my, my husband's daughter, my stepdaughter, out there, putting her through school if she decided to stay, if she decided to have her there for the school year, taking our maid with us from Morocco and paying all the f- expenses for bringing her there. Because one thing that my, my, I, my, I sent my husband to, to go there with a list of about 500 questions <laughs> that he had to give, come back with the answers to. And one of them, knowing that having had the experience in Pakistan, that it was difficult to find any help in the house and that you had to do everything, your, mm-hmm. you know, everything, cooking from, you know, there mm-hmm. was, you couldn't even buy bread. Yeah. You know, you yeah. had to make your bread, everything. Mm-hmm. And what a pain in the neck this was to do everything, absolutely everything, from start to finish. So I said, "Well, I want to have a, I want to have a maid. I want to have a cook. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this again." Yes. Especially, I knew that the health situation was very bad, so I didn't mm-hmm. want to hire somebody local because I thought I were, we're going to get sick. So, but you said your husband had a, a daughter. Yes. And she was living with you in Morocco? She did not stay with us. She came for the school holidays to Morocco. But when we went to Yemen, she came for the summer. And at that point, my husband said, I don't want to send her back. uh, I I want to put her in the American school. I want her to learn English. And I want to have her here for at least one year. He simply wrote his wife and said, I'm not sending her back. Uh, We didn't have a phone at home. He told her a couple of days before, you're not going back. And he took, and she started, you know, she was crying for about a day. And then he took her to the American school. He showed her around and he took her to meet the teacher who was a very motherly kind of person and very sweet and kind. And my stepdaughter came back all smiles. I did meet people very quickly. The American community, it was very easy to meet people. And in September, when my stepdaughter started to school, Somebody said, look, we need somebody to work the U.S. Embassy Information Service for three months. Would you be interested in doing it? And I said, sure, because that by that time it was clear that the Amenis had no intention of hiring me mm. as a sociologist. Okay. So first I took the job in the embassy for three months, and then I was offered a job teaching English to the Yemeni Air Force. So I taught like 20 Air Force officers every morning. Yes. <laughs> That was an experience. So that, that gave me an insight into mm-hmm. sort of the way Yemeni men think. I said, look, I'm not going to dress differently. I don't do that here. I'm wearing my skirts and blouses like I wore in Morocco. Mm-hmm. The hell with this covering yourself up. I don't agree with it. They were training these officers to do a training in the U.S., so they had to learn English, and it was the cultural acclimation for them also the American ways, so they should get used to be dealing with women in a normal situation. Yes. So, yeah, you sit there and you, you know, your legs from here to here are bare. They get used to it. I stopped teaching, I think, after about seven or eight months, and this was, I don't know, like September or something like that. I had really had enough of Yemen by that time. Our stepdaughter, the stepdaughter had gone back to, to Belgium, I was not teaching anymore, and I wanted to get out. At that point, our landlord had threatened me with a revolver. You knew why? He was drunk, so he had threatened to shoot me and and, and our dog. He didn't like the dog, but he was drunk, so he wanted to shoot both of us. 
so I insisted that we move also, and um, I said I wasn't going to live next door to him anymore. And it's just very good, again, good timing. Um, the consulting firm that we, the Belgians that we had been with in Morocco, they had a big contract with the Algerian government to do town planning in three cities in Algeria. And they asked me whether I be either of us would be interested in working on that project. So I said, yes, I said, yes me, me, me. <laughs> Tomorrow I can be there. My husband had a contract for two years, and he decided he would, he would honor it. He wasn't that keen to break the contract. Yes. So I said, well, I'm going back to, to Brussels. So I left in November. So I resumed my old life. Eventually, in the summer, my husband came back. He started doing work for the World Bank, and at one point, the World Bank said, we need somebody desperately to go out to Bangladesh. Would you, know, would you go for six months? And he hadn't had work for a long time, so he said, yes, I'll go. And I said, I'm not going with you. <laughs> a few months later, my husband and I decided that we, it was time to move to, the, to Washington, that we knew there was so much work there. And everybody said, if you just lived in the United States, <laughs> we'd give you lots of work. <laughs> We, after Christmas, we decided, okay, well, in any case, we're moving to Washington. That was 1988. Talk about cultural adaptations. That was a hard adaptation for me. It was an easy one for my Dutch husband. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> he loved it. He was working in the World Bank. He was Every two months he went abroad for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, he knew what the work was. He had some problems with adapting to the World Bank cultural, but that, culture, but that came later. For me, it was difficult because I came back again with no job and with no children. I moved to Bethesda. I was lost here. I didn't adapt very well. I missed all my friends. I had nothing to do. And, you know, I kept making the rounds and trying to find uh, consulting work. Eventually, but it took a very long time, I think it took six months before I had my first consulting job. Did you have, like, also a shock because being American, you thought, oh, I'm going home, it's going to be easy, and then I thought you realized that all these years abroad, you changed. Oh, you changed me so much. You have, like, I the reverse culture shock. I had nothing in common with the people I was meeting. My head was in a different place. Completely. I saw the world completely differently. They could have no concept of the life that I had led, either in Europe or in developing countries. They, they couldn't. How could they? So you had the impression that you were the one who was not completely American anymore? Or no, I wasn't. Was a different... <laughs> I, was, I wasn't American anymore. I mean, you asked, you initially said, in what way do you, you find out when you're abroad You know, you learn a lot about yourself. I learned, and I think I learned this to a great extent in Belgium, because you, you, you think, okay, it's Europe. All my family's from Germany, so genetically I'm completely German. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I found there were a lot of, in a lot of ways, I was very American. In a lot of ways, I was completely ad- adaptable, and I adapted to Belgian ways of doing things. And to, but in certain ways of thinking, I stayed American mm-hmm. in my head. It's hard to shift those. They shift somewhat. They, they, they stretch, I would yes. say. So here in Bethesda, you, you didn't spend much time with other women? Or... 
I had I had a very hard time finding friends. I think for for the most part in the beginning, my friends were instilled to to this day. I'm not sure I know any women who had not lived abroad. So I started consulting. I had been contacted by the USAID office in Tunisia. They said, "Would you be interested in coming here full time?" <laughs> in Tunisia. In Tunisia. <laughs> and so I accepted. Yes. <laughs> This time you were the one who. Yeah. Was. Yes. <laughs> and at that time, my husband was doing a lot of work, short-term work for the World Bank. He said, "I don't want to go, because if I go there all the time, I'll lose my connections yeah. with the World Bank." And I said, "You're crazy. You know, the why now there's email and now there's faxes. You know, it's easier now." He said, "No, I don't want to." So I said, "Well, I'm taking the job. I'll take it for one year. I'll make my contract for one year renewable. So we'll see how it works out." But I got out there, and I absolutely loved my. I loved living in Tunisia. I loved my job. I had a wonderful job and a wonderful team. I was just very happy. So he, my husband, then would come visit me when he was on on the way somewhere to India or to okay. God knows where he was working. And you know, so he would come two or three times a year, and I got back to the U.S. at least twice a year. So I stayed three and a half years. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> so he accepted the situation. Well, he'd accepted that we each on our own terms, which was, and this still was no internet. Still, I mean, I had I by that time I had email at the office. Nobody had email at home. So we really had very little contact with each other. So the relationship pretty much deteriorated. It was just impossible. He kept saying, "When are you going to come back? When are you coming back?" And then after I'd been there three years, I said, "Okay, so I'll come back." And at that time, he was just about to go to Russia for the World Bank. And、uh, when he was out there, they said, "Would you like to come back for a year?" So he said, "Yes." I could have gone to Russia, and probably got a job with USAID immediately. But I decided I didn't want to because I thought if I go to Russia, maybe I won't be able to keep all the contacts、mm-hmm. I've now made. Also, my mother was very old, and I'd been away a long time, and I felt a little bit guilty because we were three children and none of us lived nearby. I moved back January first, and he came back in the summer and told me he wanted to get divorced. I mean, you were not surprised. Not big surprise. And eventually, I actually was introduced to. The man I did eventually marry, but he and he was had a world so different to, from mine that it was interesting to me, because I'd lived such a strange life、mm-hmm. up to that point. And he was American. He had gone to the best schools in the United States. He'd worked as a, an advisor to a president in the White House. He joined a law firm. He made a lot of money. So, <laughs> so this was very intriguing to me. And also, I liked him. <laughs> so yes, so、um, that took me into a world that was a very different world from mine, because he knew about fifteen hundred lawyers who were all his best friends, <laughs> and and the world of American politics, which I had stayed very far from because I didn't like American politics at all, and I had a very European perspective about American politics, especially American foreign policy. So you were very critical, very critical, and very not interested. <laughs> <laughs> and he was completely enmeshed in American politics, and、um, we saw each other. And after a year and a half, he moved into my house. 
and still was working at USAID, going abroad every six or eight weeks uh, for a couple of weeks. Uh, and that time you had a proper wedding, not in a consulate like the first time. That's true. We did our own wedding in, in, the, in the garden behind our house. Yeah, but it was not. I wouldn't say a four. It was not a very proper wedding. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a big party, married by a judge, a federal judge who was yes. <laughs> a good friend of my husband's. So, you know. so you we thought about having. Friend? We thought about asking the Supreme Court judge, <laughs> Justice Pryor, who was a very good friend of my husband. <laughs> but when we thought, oh, that's no too too formal. We'll ask a, just a fe- another judge. So. so you had a simple wedding, a romantic <laughs> one. Fun. <laughs> Lots of fun. To sort of put a final touch on this, I do miss living in Europe. I've insisted on going back to Europe at least once every year. I was in Europe until a few years ago. I was in and out of Europe several times a year. Mm-hmm. Now I stopped working two years ago. Now if I told you you should organize a dinner with perfect strangers, so you mm-hmm. should invite people that you would be curious to know, but you have the impression that You have no idea what you could have in common. Well, I, I think I would invite somebody artistic. I am in awe of musicians, especially. If I ask you now, what gives you fear? I think what I've always feared is not making the maximum of every minute. Is there something that you want to add? to? Well... Well, you know, I've met, so I, even though I spent quite, I think, I spent 20 years living uh, out in other countries, it, I think it just gives you a, a wonderful uh, appreciation of people. Yes, there are differences between people, and there are different worldviews. I would not say everybody's the same. Yes, everybody's the same, but we have, we have you know, our culture shapes our, our minds in different ways. Mm-hmm. And you, there are definitely things that you change in you over, first of all, just getting older, growing older and seeing more of the world should change people, but it doesn't change everyone. If you never go into another situation, you're never going to broaden your horizon and change. If you consider, okay, I knew this, this is the way my family lived, this is the society I grew up in, but you have the time in another culture to turn those over in your mind and decide, I agree or I don't agree. But that's nice. Thank you, Bonnie. My, my It was pleasure. a pleasure to listen to your story. A pretty crazy story. When, you ref- when I reflect on it, I'm amazed. <laughs> <laughs> But it's, it's the life I wanted. <laughs>